Are you a small business owner looking to take your business to the next level? Are you interested in starting a business but don't know where to begin? Welcome to the Source Capital Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs gain a better understanding of the capital raising process and help them get the funding necessary to start and grow their business. I'm your host, Corey Townsend, and I help people start and grow businesses. Use those businesses to create and manage wealth and use their wealth to establish and preserve their legacy. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I'm here with Corey Townsend. Corey, how are you doing? Good. Doing great. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you. You know, in the call that we did with Amberly, you just kind of brief introduction about you and what you're doing. I think we have a little bit of commonality and background. So it's really excited to be able to chat with you and learn a little bit more about you and your new business. So let's start with where you're from and what it was like to grow up there. Of course. Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I mean, I uh, was checking out your YouTube videos and I love what you're doing out there about raising capital and the small business banking. I think you can add a lot of value and I love the mission. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Of course. I was born in India, moved to the US when I was five years old, lived in Minnesota for about 12 years, grew up in the cold and I loved it. But my parents were like, all right, time to move away from the cold. (laughs) And so so my mom's job relocated down North Carolina, so it was a perfect time for me to apply to universities in North Carolina, got into NC State, and after graduating with a degree in finance and accounting, I worked for a bank, then moved to Charlotte, was working for that bank, and recently, in the last two months, just left my employer and officially launched my own business. So it feels great. I mean, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart, so it feels incredible just to leave that corporate America lifestyle just to start my own business, which I'm super passionate about. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's super exciting. Did you always plan to be an entrepreneur? Was that kind of always the plan? Or were your parents like mine and said you had to be a lawyer or a doctor or something more traditional? (laughs) My parents, of course, valued the education and getting a good job, as most parents would, right? But deep down, I knew that I didn't want to work for someone. But, you know, I'm not at all against working hard. In fact, I'm working three times more hours now as I did ever. And so it's not the hard work that concerns me. It's the result which concerns me. It's like, cool, I can work so much. And based on the company, you really don't get that much out of it compared to doing your own thing. So for example, I've always found ways to make money on my own. And in high school, I taught guitar and drums. But the thing is, I didn't know how to play either of these (laughs) instruments. So what I did was, after I got some clients, basically like my mom's friends, kids are like, hey, Vijay, could you teach drums? And I'm like, sure. So I went on YouTube, literally learned a lesson on how to do a quick beat, and then literally practiced it on the car drive to their house, <laughs> and then basically taught them. And I'm like, okay, great. This is 45 minutes worth of material. That's perfect. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So as long as I knew just slightly more than the student, it made sense for me to do this. So that way, I learned a musical instrument, got money. The parents got almost free babysitting. Actually, they got musical lessons and the kids learned. So it was just a giant win-win situation for everyone. And then after I moved to Charlotte, I got into real estate investing. Also part of that entrepreneurial side, I lived in one room and I rented out the other rooms in my house. And so because of that, I was able to make enough money to save up for a down payment for my second house, mm-hmm. which I live in the room and rent out the other room. So Because of real estate, I was able to leave my employer. Okay. So then I could focus on my entrepreneurial passions. 
Yeah, that's a great point for kind of what I do here in terms of the source capital. I think everybody believes that to get capital, you have to go to somebody else, right? And I think yours is an amazing story because you've been very creative about ways to raise capital. And I love that you started out as a kid, basically, okay, as long as I know more than the person I'm teaching, I can make money teaching them that and literally learning it on the fly. That's amazing. I think it's a huge lesson for entrepreneurs and how to get started with a business, whether you're a teenager or an adult. As long as you know more than the person you're teaching, there's value in what you can provide to them. That's fantastic. So you went to NC State and you graduated and ended up in banking. Was the plan always to work in finance and banking or you just thought it would be a useful skill, irrespective of what field you went into. How did you decide in, on financial banking and end up in banking? Yeah, of course. So I learned about the existence of the stock market back in like seventh grade. I didn't really know anything about it. I just remember seeing the stock prices on newspaper back in seventh grade and we did stock market project. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. You can put money somewhere. It can go up, down. I didn't really understand it, but I really wanted to go into marketing in high school. I took Luckily, my high school had about 3,000 kids, and we had a big business division in high school. And so I took about 16 business courses throughout my four years in high school. Oh, wow. And it was like finance, investing, marketing, business-heavy classes. But what I liked a lot was marketing. Mm -hmm. But then senior year of high school, I was competing in this competition called DECA. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's an association for marketing students. And there's this competition and I participate in something called entrepreneurship, growing your business. So to participate in this, you must have had your own business and you have to create a business plan, a 30 page business plan on how you want to grow it. So this business actually going back to the story was my music teaching. Mm. And so I basically create a hypothetical company called Kailash Music School, where I have to put together a five year business plan on, hey, this is how we're doing it. We're going to offer summer classes and so do all the financial projections and marketing, who the target audience is. So kind of just learning all aspects of the business. And I realized what I loved the most was actually the financial part. And I had no idea. I didn't even realize that until I did that project. Because wow. I was like, oh, marketing is so cool. But I'm like, Excel is actually even cooler. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know, I became a huge Excel nerd at that point. And I was able to do projected financial statements. And I didn't know any of that. But And then I got into the stock market and I'm like, finance, what I want to study. So I changed my major before even declaring it from marketing to finance. And then investing is where it kind of hit me. It's like, you're telling me I could put my money away somewhere else, go to sleep, come back. And then I would have theoretically made more. Like, of course, it's over a long time period, but that just kind of hit me. And then I started learning more and more about how money works, started learning about debt, how to use debt properly, the leverage and the tax benefits of investing. And I'm just like, this is insane. You can make money work for you rather than you working for money, but work because you want to, not because you have to. Right. That's huge. When you can work because you want to and not because if you don't work, you put so many other things in your life and family situation at risk. It's a totally different situation. So you went into banking and finance and did you start out sort of in an investment shop or because you know finance is very broad you can end up in a lot of different areas of finance i didn't learn that until i got into it so did you kind of start out exactly where you wanted to be working in the stock market or did you have other plans in terms of being in finance and investment no so you know a bunch of my friends want to go to wall street and all that and i started exploring that just because finance wall street that's just kind of the natural but then 
I realized I didn't really want to be working eight hours a week (laughs) because I knew I want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, if I were to even do that, it kind of takes away from my entrepreneurial vision. So I'm like, okay, let me just do a regular bank, not a Wall Street bank, a Main Street bank, and just work the hours so I could focus on entrepreneurship and investing on the side. And so I started working for a PNC bank, great employer, first employer out of college for me, first and only. And I started working in corporate and institutional banking. Okay. So if you look at large corporations, they need debt. And the arms which we worked with were basically giving loans, but I worked specifically within treasury management. It's related to ACHs, wires, kind of like a bank account for a large corporation. And all the services that go into that. So that's what I did, but it wasn't really where my passion was because I knew it was investment management. So I started studying for something called a CFA exam. Not sure if you're familiar with it. Oh, yeah, sure. And yeah, so I passed level one after studying for over 400 hours. And I got an interview with institutional asset management in Charlotte. And because I passed the exam, got the interview, did well in the interview. And they're like, how does Charlotte sound? I'm like, that sounds great. So I moved there from Raleigh. And I've been in Charlotte since 2018. And I've been in the same role since then until January 2022 when I just left. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. But at the same time, I got into trading options and options trading. It felt right for me. And I was talking to another fund manager and we're talking about trading different asset classes. And he gave me an analogy. He said, trading is like dating. You date stocks, you date Forex, you date futures, you date options, but eventually you find one that you really like and then you get married to them. (laughs) And that's the thing. I'm like, that just kind of blew my mind because I'm like, that's exactly what happened. I dated Forex. I did not. We just didn't get along. Equities, it's fun, but it's just not that powerful for me. I loved real estate, but then when I got to options, I'm like, this is it. It was like my calling. And that's how it felt for me. So I was trading that for about six years, started performing really well after, I mean, of course, initially when I first started, I borrowed $5,000 from my parents and I immediately lost $3,000 because I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Like if you trade, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But after that, I'm like, all right, BJ, stop letting your ego get in the way. Put everything on back burner. Let's learn about it. So I spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours actually learning about options. Mm-hmm. And I started trading successfully in the last three years. And I'm like, I'm on this great strategy. I start pitching it to investors. They're like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And so I started getting legal documents ready, started my fund and officially launched, left my employer. Or actually, after I wired my own money into the fund, gave my two weeks notice. <laughs> And so then starting February, uh, first officially launched it. And as of two days ago, I got my first investor to sign the documents and wire the money. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, 27 days into the official launch, got my first investor. He's a Silicon Valley based fund to fund manager. And he's like, yeah, the strategy makes sense. And so he runs a fund to fund. So that's awesome. planning to invest on that. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. It was crazy. I was not expecting this much momentum in just the first 27 days. But I guess long story short, I loved finance, but it took me a little second to get to where I am. But I always knew investing was the way to go in the last seven, eight years. So were you doing options at PNC or were you doing that on your own? That was completely on my own. Okay. And that's what I liked about it. It was... Moonlighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what happened was because we were managing clients' portfolios, PNC actually blocked my trading. Mm. They I actually got flagged because I was trading 200 something times every quarter. And I was, I guess, the person trading the most and all my trades have to get cleared. And they've literally got an email from compliance and they're like, you cannot trade this much anymore. And my manager had to sign something. I had to sign something. So I'm just like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I just stopped. And so I couldn't trade. But... 
because of that, I found ways to make other money. And that's how I got into real estate. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to stop making money. Right. So I got into real estate and because of that, you know, that went on a different path. But coincidentally in the fall of 2020, I got an email from compliance saying I'm no longer restricted for trading. And so I reached out to them like, are you 100% sure about this? Like everything's good to go. They're like, yeah. So I saved it, PDF'd it, made sure I, I have proof of that. And then I started trading again. And I'm like, this is it. I found my strategy. Yeah. And so, you know, trade that a little bit more into my Roth IRA. And I'm like, Vijay, you have to do this. This is, it's your calling, right? Like when you find something that you're just so passionate about, you need to jump into it. And that's exactly what happened. Well, one of the reasons I was super excited to have you on, when we first met, I didn't really know what your strategy was. I knew you were starting a fund. I knew you were going out on your own. But when I actually found out what your strategy was, I was really excited because one of the things I'd like for entrepreneurs to think about, and one of the reasons I created the show and I kind of try to do what I do, is I think there's kind of few phases, right? So I'm the risk aspect of but you know, you've got your basic risk your market risk, and then your aspirational risk. And so along that line of thinking, kind of entrepreneurship for me is the aspirational risk bucket. And the market risk bucket is kind of where you try to keep up with inflation and maintain your current standard of living. And so I was excited to have you on because kind of what you're doing can address either the market risk or the aspirational risk, depending on how aggressive your personal strategy is. So tell us a little bit about your strategy, how you came to develop it over time. I know there was probably a little bit of trial and error in terms of starting out initially as, okay, this is a way to make some extra money. This is something I'm passionate about and I like to do to actually evolving into, wow, I have a strategy. This works and it can work for not only me, but for other people. So tell us a little bit about that evolution. So for those who are not familiar with options, basically they're just financial contracts which lets someone buy or sell a stock at a certain price on or before an expiration date. So there's potentially negative connotations around options. I'll clear that air because a lot of people view them as lottery tickets, as in, oh, I can invest $100. I'm using air quotes. Right. Invest $100, and then this could magically turn into $1,000. Yeah, it's technically possible. A lot of people have done it, but 99% of people lose the entire $100. And so basically my strategy is, Instead of doing those one-off major plays, I want to be consistently generating income. And that's what the strategy is. So if you think of car insurance, every six months you pay your insurance premium. Best case, you don't crash your car, but what happens to that premium? You just end up losing it, right? The insurance company makes that money. But if you do crash your car, the insurance company buys the car from you and you're happy you had insurance. And so that's what it is. So we are the insurance company, but instead of selling insurance on cars, we sell insurance on the stock market. <laughs> So if the market does not crash, we make 20 to 25% a year, and that's really good returns just in premiums collected. But if the market does crash, we become obligated to buy all these amazing companies at lower prices, mm. which is exactly what you want to do as a long-term buy and hold investor. So no matter what happens, market goes up, you make 25%, market goes down, you become obligated to buy it at a lower price. But because you're holding for 20 years, it doesn't matter because you wanted to own these amazing companies anyways. Right. That's a great strategy. Yeah. Of course. So that's the strategy. And that's what I was doing in my retirement account. And I realized a lot of other people could also benefit from this. How did you get to that strategy? Because as you said, there's a lot of different ways to buy and trade options. You can either be buying or selling. And depending on if you're buying a call or a put, and not to get too deep into the weeds, but 
you have different exposures. And so your strategy, how did you evolve to get to that point to where, okay, this is something that makes a lot of sense to me. It's something that I could take out to other people and they could benefit from it. How did that process evolve? Because, you know, as you said, you started out with 5,000 and immediately your portfolio went to two. Yeah. So how did you get into that process? It's realizing you're not better than the market. Mm. As much as we all like to believe that we are smarter than everyone else, reality slaps you in the face. And it doesn't matter. Even if you're right about being smarter, the market doesn't care. (laughs) And the sooner you understand that, the more profitable you'll be in the long run. So like you said, lost three grand immediately. I realized I was doing something wrong. And I'm like, okay, what should I do? So I started researching more and more. And I came across some articles saying, don't be option buyers, become option sellers. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, whatever. I'm going to dismiss it. It took me losing $3,000 to realize I'm like, okay, there's a reason this guy's profitable and a reason I'm not. Right. He's the reason. He's the one making the 3000 while I'm the one losing 3000 right. So let me put my ego aside. Let me actually learn from someone who's actually profitable consistently, mm-hmm. or that's what he claims to be. And then I started learning it and I started implementing some of those strategies in my own portfolio. I'm like, holy crap, this makes so much sense. But the thing is, I thought of the strategy before even reading about it. Like it goes into a lot more details, but then I realized I'm like, why aren't more people doing it? And I started Googling, I'm like selling put options and all that. And then articles showed up after the fact. And so it kind of like solidified my investment thesis. Mm-hmm. At first, I'm just like, why aren't more people doing it? And I feel I thought about it myself. And then I Googled it and I'm like, people actually do it. There's a real term for it. It's called cash secured put options. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is it. It's like, you feel like you invented something, but then you got a whole bunch of confirmation bias from other people who are successful at doing it. And then putting the pieces together and then learning about, I guess, the details from other traders on what you should and shouldn't do, best practices, best delta sell at, days to expiration, a whole bunch of details. And that kind of solidified my trading strategy. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about the process. I am, you're a serial entrepreneur, but let's talk a little bit about the process for starting your current business. How long it took you? What was the process you had to go through to figure out? Because Setting up an investment fund is, you know, every business is complicated, right? You want to do a restaurant, you got to go out and make sure you get your permits, et cetera, et cetera. So similar type of process for an investment fund, but maybe a few more layers of complication and regulation. So, so walk us through how, what the process was like to actually start the business. I've been wanting to actually start hedge funds since senior in college. If you ask any of my close friends, if they ask, hey, what does BJ want to do? Ultimately, they'd be like, start a hedge fund. And a few years after graduating, I was telling my friends, I'm like, I want to start a hedge fund. They're like, Vijay, you're the only person I know who's had the same goal since college. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, Instagram, as much as people hate targeted ads, I think it changed my life because of all the stuff I'm Googling. I got an ad from a guy named Bridger Pennington. He runs a company called IFS Investment Fund Secrets. And it's like, do you want to start a hedge fund? I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I watched the ad. <laughs> And it was basically like, hey, this is how you legally set up the fund. Because I had the technical background. I understand finance. I understand every aspect about it, except the actual legal side. Right. And I'm like, this is exactly where I need help. So I paid for the course. It was $1,000. And I think it was the best 1000 I've ever spent because it literally walks you through different types of fund structures, the 506B versus 506C. What is the 3C1 versus 3C7? All these legal things, which I have no idea about. I started learning it. And so now I actually knew what to Google. They have attorneys they work with and all that. So once I understood the basics and uh, started raising soft commitments of capital, basically telling investors, I'm like, hey, I'm doing this. This is something you'd be invested interested in. 
And after getting multiple yeses, I'm like, yeah, there's a demand in the market for this. Mm-hmm. So now let me go back to my attorneys, get the legal process started. I just threw money at them like, you guys take care of it. I kind of understand it so I can fact check a little bit, but I trust you. And the legal documents are what takes, I guess, the largest amount of money. But got that started and then went back to the investors. But unfortunately, because I started raising capital back in August or September, and when I got these capital commitments, now I reached back to them in February saying, hey, I'm officially ready to accept capital. They said, some of my investors, they're like, Vijay, I'm actually under contract for a 200 unit apartment building, so I cannot actually commit that capital anymore. Wow. So it was a wake up call for me. It's like people are not just going to leave hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions just sitting in cash waiting for you to start because they're going to move when they find opportunity. So now is this the goal is to get in front of more and more investors showing them, hey, I've got this incredible product. Question is, do I want to work with you? Because I can only accept 99 investors, legally speaking, <laughs> for this fund. And so it's raising capital from people who I like and trust and who also like and trust me as well. That's a mutual relationship rather than, hey, please invest me. It's more of a, I have this great product. Should I let you invest with me? Right? Right. And it's based on our relationship. So that's how I view it. Yeah. So with respect to the strategy, did you view it more as sort of a, a market risk strategy? You know, you're trying to outperform the market up consistently over long periods of time, or did you view it more as an aspirational strategy where you're trying to create incremental exponential wealth and take people's lifestyle from A to B? I think I fall somewhere in the middle. I think it's definitely a market risk strategy, but the thing is, I think it'll perform better than just investing in the stock market in the long run. This is why. During bear markets, you have two different scenarios. Let's say stock's at $100, right? You could buy the stock as is. Scenario B, with my strategy, you could sell insurance at $95, strike price, collect a $2 premium, and these are two scenarios. So let's say the stock actually drops 10%. So from 100, it goes down 90. Scenario A, you would have just lost 10%. Scenario B, you would have been obligated to buy the stock at 95, collected the $2 premium, and now it's at 90. So you only lost $3 in scenario B compared to $10 in scenario A. So in the long run, if this continues happening, who's going to be better off? Someone who lost $10 or someone who lost three? Right. And so it actually produces better risk-adjusted returns in the very long run. Short term, yeah, you can still lose money. That's where it falls in the market risk. Mm-hmm. But you won't lose as much money as someone who had just bought the stock outright comparing apples to apples. Right. So let me ask you this. What do you think is the most important quality to have to do what you're doing, right? Because I'm sure some people will listen to this. This won't be for everybody, but some people listen to this. And go, you know, I like finance. I'm willing to put in the time and the hours to learn about options. If they wanted to do a strategy, not necessarily similar to yours, but just an investment strategy based on options, what's the most important characteristic or trait that you think they would need to have in order to do that? So this, I think, applies to everything in life is when you are wrong, accept it, understand why. And so you realize whether it's a mistake on your part or because it's some other circumstance. There's this book I read called Thinking in Bets, and it's from a professional poker player. And she was talking about everything you do is literally, hey, statistics. I'm going to make this decision because statistically it's going to be favorable, but it's not 100%. Nothing's ever 100%. So let's say it doesn't go your way. Does it mean you should never make that decision again? No. It just means know that it's statistical play. And so when you're wrong, figure out whether it's because you're actually wrong or because statistically it didn't work your way. Mm, Wow. 
And it's about putting your ego to the side. And this applies to everything, not getting into your dream university, didn't get the job you want, didn't the trades didn't go your way. Your buyers of your business, they're not buying for XYZ reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it because they lost their job or is it because your product sucks? Right? Right. And so does that mean you need to change something? And it's kind of having an open mind and trying to understand the holistic scenario rather than just one dimensional. And I think that's extremely important for any aspect of life, especially for trading. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what would you say the most important lesson you've learned so far in your career? I mean, obviously, that's a great philosophical mindset. And I sure through the way with some of the interior overall career experiences, you've probably had some setbacks outside of the initial investment in options. What would you say is the most important lesson? Is it that lesson about thinking about everything more from a statistical standpoint or is it something else? I think the biggest lesson which has benefited me is trying to see it from someone else's perspective. Mm-hmm. Because if you think of, at least in the stock market, the reason you're buying a stock is because someone else is selling it. And they're selling it for a reason. You're buying it for a reason. It doesn't mean you're right. doesn't mean they're right. It just means there's different reasons why. And the more aggregate reasons you could find for a certain decision, it will help you make better decisions. And I think that's something I learned because, yeah, I'm selling options, but the reason is there's someone buying it because either they're using it to hedge their portfolio or they're using it to gamble. Regardless, it doesn't matter. I'm getting my outcome and it it makes sense for me. It might make sense for them. It could be a win-win situation for both parties. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean just because I'm winning, you're losing. It means I'm winning, but you can also be winning. And it's kind of important to see a holistic standpoint. That's a great perspective because we have a tendency, I think, to look at everything as a zero-sum game and yeah. particularly in investments. And if somebody is selling or a stock or an investment is doing a particular thing, then that must mean I am absolutely right or absolutely wrong in what I'm doing. And that's a great point. It could be that they have a reason for doing what they're doing. I have a reason for doing what I'm doing. And we can both be right about what we're trying to do and this being the way to accomplish what we're trying to do. That's a fantastic point. So what would you say is the most common myth about what you do in terms of option strategy? I know we talked about the lottery ticket scenario where everybody thinks, oh, you buy options, it's a lottery ticket. And yeah. You absolutely win or absolutely lose. Well, is that it or is there other you know, misperceptions of so I was actually talking to a few of my financial advisor friends about the strategy, and they're like, Vijay, I love it because I understand it. But what people don't like is because they don't understand it, they think of it as immediately risky. Like, think of cryptocurrency. Like, I have my own opinions on it. I'm bullish, just to clear that air. But just because people don't understand it, they're scared of it. And so they don't even try to learn it. And they're just like, oh, crypto options? They're super scary words. I'm not even going to learn it. But in the back of my mind, I'm going to think of it as risky. Right. When in reality, options are used to hedge risk. It actually lowers risk. And so that's a huge common misconception, not really understanding the products you're trading. Wow, that's a great point. But similar to, I guess, driving a car, right? Like if you don't know how to drive a car, it's extremely risky. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Right? But once you understand how it works, you can get from point A to point B extremely quickly and efficiently and safely. But you have to learn how to drive the car, how it works enough to use it properly. Right. That's a great point. Absolutely. So what would you say is your biggest pet peeve? I mean, you've worked in banking and finance for a number of years and have had client relationships in various different areas of finance. And now you're developing client relationships in your own business. What would be your biggest pet peeve 
in terms of clients that you are either working with or trying to work with. So luckily, I mean, this isn't 100%, but there is a correlation between the amount of wealth someone has and who they are as a person, I think. Because most people who become wealthy, they do it by actually adding genuine value to people. Mm -hmm. People respect them, people like them. And so there's something about their qualities that people like that gravitate to giving them more wealth, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, the clients I'm targeting are very respected in their industries. They understand how to network and connect with people on a human level rather than transactional. Right. So that's I'm prefacing this because my other life, I still run my Airbnbs in Charlotte. And so you find a completely different spectrum of clients who are just price shoppers. They don't care about anything. They're like, hey, this is the lowest cost. I'm going to give you a bad review just because I'm unhappy about one certain thing. I mean, this doesn't happen, but just theoretically. Right. And it happens based on the mentality of different people. And it's like, I hate doing that connecting wealth to who you are as a person because I, I don't believe that's 100% accurate. There's always examples on both ends of the spectrum. But people on average who usually are wealthier usually are more giving. Right. And that's how they became wealthier. And so it's kind of my pet peeve dealing with people who are not necessarily grateful, mm-hmm. who have such a, I guess, narrow mindset without the growth or abundance mindset. And that's something I'm still working on. And I'm saying pet peeve because I notice flaws in myself. Yeah. When I'm talking to someone, I'm like, Vijay, that is so narrow-minded. Think about it from their perspective. And I'm just being trying to be more intentional about being open about it. Yeah. But then it's like when you try to convince someone something and they're like, oh, no, this is how it is. This is how it's always been. It's like, all right, there's zero point trying to convince them. Just accept it and move on to a different conversation. Right. So I guess, yeah, narrow-minded or abundance mindset differences. You're absolutely right. It takes a while to learn this, but when you're dealing with people who clearly have a closed mindset and you're not going to be able to convince them and you can't really invest a whole lot of time trying to convince them, which is just going to frustrate you and them through the process. You're absolutely right. So let's talk about going forward. I always like to ask people, you know, where do you think things will be in your business and in the market over the next five or maybe 10 or even as many as 50 years you introduced? crypto into the discussion. We won't do a deep dive into crypto, but I would love to get your insights where you think things will be in the next five years or so with you and your business markets, et cetera. Of course. So there's a huge demand in the finance industry for Python programmers. The reason is everything's becoming more automated, more algorithmic. And in fact, my company is also going that route. I'm learning Python on the side just because I want to be able to have intellectual conversations with programmers I eventually hire. It's that my strategy is extremely mechanical and systematic, as in I don't really decide what I do. It's based on market inputs. My spreadsheet tells me what I should do. Mm. But eventually, I want to put this on Python connected to my broker so it automatically just gets inputs and trades accordingly. And so I view it as a lot more hands-off traders. I'm not saying this is going to happen in five years, but as time goes on, the actual demand for traders who are actually clicking the buttons is going to go down, Mm -hmm. but the demand for algorithmic traders is going to go up higher. People are able to actually program it. I think you could probably extrapolate that out to all businesses. In my business right now, we have individuals that collect data from clients in order to evaluate a loan request. My bank just acquired a company that does you know, that financial analysis and underwriting. They basically have the client the data themselves, and they have a computer that spits out a result that tells you whether or not you're approved. So you're absolutely right. That the value is going to be in all businesses and minimizing the human 
capital required to get things done and leveraging the computing power to make those decisions faster and quite, probably, quite frankly, a little bit more accurately and more reliably based on a lot more data that can be processed. Great point. Absolutely, yeah. I usually ask people, if you could start a business tomorrow, what would it be? You just started a business <laughs> with 28 days ago, so that question is maybe not entirely appropriate, but you are very entrepreneurial. I would definitely categorize you as a serial entrepreneur. You still have multiple businesses. So let's frame the question in this way. You've got this business as you evolve and you begin to hire programs and Perhaps you don't have to be as hands-on in the process. Maybe you spend a few days each month going out, visiting clients, raising capital. What would be the next business that you would tend to look at or focus on if, if you could and had the capacity to do so? Absolutely. So I've always been interested in investing startups, so the venture capital side. Okay. And it's something which I haven't explored too much. I just find it as an interesting concept. And to be a VC... To be a successful venture capitalist, I think it's a prerequisite to have started your own successful business. Mm -hmm. So when you're actually talking with founders, you could see, because you're not really investing in the product or necessarily the business. I know they're big, but you're actually investing in the founder. And when you talk to them, you get to see, do they have the same hunger as I did? Are they actually as committed or are they just going to take this money kind of and just lose it, right? Right. It's like how resourceful are they? Right, right. And that's why I love the VC side, but I'm still new to it, don't really understand it fully, but it's something I do want to probably start in the next five to 10 years once Kailash Capital kicks off. Okay. So maybe fund seven or eight might be more VC focused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Even though I just launched fund one, I'm already thinking about version two of this fund. And it's kind of incredible. It's like, it's still options trading, but it's a slightly different product set, different strategy. Mm -hmm. But I think it actually adds a completely different spectrum of products and expected returns and risk profiles available for investors. So it's like you said, yeah, I have this great product. I'm raising capital for this one product, but on the side, I'm starting to explore a second version of this. Well, we would love to have you back on when you launch. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about it. Where can everybody find you on the old interweb and social media, et cetera? I know I did see that you recently launched a podcast of your own. So tell us all about that. Where can we find you out on the interweb? So I launched a website called vjkailash.com, just my first name, last name.com. On there, if you're interested in about learning about options, I actually start posting articles on there, very introduction options. Time goes on, I'm going to start teaching my strategy, more advanced techniques, a lot more details that you can actually implement in your own portfolios. I'm a huge fan of sharing what I know. And because I do really enjoy the groupthink aspect of it. Let's say I post something, someone who understands options, they reach back out. They're like, Vijay, why don't you do this? Makes me think. I think everyone benefits by sharing knowledge. Right. And that's the reason I'm doing it, right? So if you want to learn about options, go to vjkailash.com. I also launched a podcast called The VJ Kailash Show. The goal is to bring on, similar to you, entrepreneurs, investors, and basically talk about entrepreneurship, investing, and self-improvement. Awesome. Because I think all three of those go together. At least those are aspects of my life which I really enjoy. Self-improvement includes meditation, eating well, exercising, building relationships, investing. You know, it's my professional background, entrepreneurship as well. But I think to do the investing in entrepreneurship well, you need to have the self-improvement part as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I'm doing all that. 
And lastly, if you're interested in some of my favorite books, I do have a section on my website as well as VJ's recommended books. So if you're like, oh, VJ, what kind of books do you recommend to get started in investing? I have a bunch of those. What are your favorite self-improvement books? I have those. And what's your favorite entrepreneurship books? I have those as well. Again, the website, vjkailash.com. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you again so much. I greatly appreciate it and have loved having you on. Absolutely would love to have you back anytime. Please let me know if you're launching a new fund or just want to hop on and chat. I'd love to do it. Absolutely, Corey. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Source Capital Podcast, where we focus on helping small business owners because we believe entrepreneurship is the best path to self-reliance, self-determination, and self-ownership. I'm your host, Corey Townsend. For more information, check us out at YourSmallBusinessBanker.com or at YourSmallBusinessBanker on Instagram or Facebook. And remember, as legendary cartoonist Walt Disney used to say, think beyond your lifetime if you want to do something truly great. 